Welcome to Try Try Again with Catherine Belez, a podcast dedicated to relationships, the one with yourself and others. We'll spend some time today looking a little more closely at childhood wounding and attachment. If you haven't listened to part one of this podcast on attachment styles and wounding, I would encourage you to do so. Today we'll look at a six-step process for further examining our childhood wounds and working toward healing those wounds. I can't tell you how many times I work with people who don't recognize they were hurt in childhood. Not recognizing we were wounded as a child can be symptomatic of the trauma, and it can also be doubly wounding in that we're not able to acknowledge or talk about it. There are reasons I ask you to explore this if you can, and some of it has to do with the myths around childhood wounding. One of the myths is that if things are in the past, they're done with, they're over. It doesn't matter anymore. But the past is very much a part of the present, particularly when it's not acknowledged or healed. You may deny it. You may be so used to it that you don't think you notice it. But it is very much there. Another myth is you'll say things to yourself like, I was weak to allow this to hurt me and affect me for so long. If I'd been stronger, it wouldn't have happened or I wouldn't have been so hurt. And that is a lie we often tell ourselves out of shame for how we're feeling, out of fear. Sometimes it's a lie that's been told to us. Some of the strongest and most courageous people I've ever known were the ones who were hurt and able to acknowledge the hurt and work toward change. Another kind of myth is that my wounding actually helped make me a better salesperson or parent or teacher or therapist. While this might seem true, and it might actually be true in small ways, the maladaptive coping skills we generally use to survive childhood wounding are oftentimes outgrown. They serve us for survival They fail to serve in the long run or in relationships. And we start to have serious problems and sometimes deep pain. That's a sign that it's time to make changes, heal, and readapt. Let's also look quickly at some of the things you may have learned from childhood wounding. Something else I hear a lot, particularly from women, has to do with empathy. If what you learned from your own wounding was to be extremely sensitive to the feelings of others and compassionate, That can be a positive. However, without balance and examination, the empathy or ability to feel another's pain can be detrimental to yourself, a sign of poor boundaries and an inability to protect self. The key is to be able to listen with compassion and empathy without absorbing the pain to the level where it damages you. This does a disservice to the speaker and if known to the speaker, doubly hurts because now they're causing you pain. If what you learned was to ignore your feelings and concentrate on solution-focused tasks at hand, getting through whatever you needed to get through, that may have served you well in business, may serve you well still in business or at home and getting things done. You might find as you get deeper into your personal life, it does not serve you well and that your feelings do matter immensely. If you learned that screaming and yelling to shut down other people allowed you to avoid the problems at hand, that might have been very effective in your family of origin at the moment. However, that behavior does not lend itself to deep, fulfilling relationships. If you learned that abuse and love can 
coexist in relationship and you find yourself repeatedly making excuses for hurtful or abusive behavior by justifying that it's part of how your partner loves you or how you show love, then it's time to re-examine that relationship and your view of loving relationships. If you've learned to use substances like alcohol or pot or anything to numb those feelings of pain, you might have learned they're extremely effective. That's why people do it. But it also numbs you to feelings of joy and gratitude and contentment and all the other feelings that make life fulfilling and truly meaningful. So one of the best ways to heal and shift your attachment style is to educate yourself and acknowledge your style, your wounding, and your feelings. Although we can't change the past, we can help break cycles of generational patterns and even the wiring in our own brains, which comes from insufficient, dismissive, neglectful, or abusive experiences. We can see it for what it is and examine the effects it's had on our relationships. Acknowledging how you attach in relationship requires a lot of honesty and a willing to look at what might be making us very uncomfortable, vulnerable, anxious. So let's start with ways to shift how we attach in our relationships. Let's start with what a secure attachment looks like. So when we have a secure attachment style, we're usually pretty good about identifying if, you know, when a feeling comes up and equally, for the most part, able to express it, particularly in a trusting relationship. Our self-esteem and self-compassion are relatively solid. We're comfortable with proximity and closeness, and we don't have much fear of being rejected or overwhelmed. We're comfortable expressing our vulnerability and we're comfortable in intimacy as well as being alone. For people who are securely attached, we may be in a relationship with someone who is not securely attached and that is contributing to the disruption in the relationship. So it's good to know about our attachment styles for ourselves and for our loved ones. So let's talk about the insecure attachments, specifically avoidant, anxious, and disorganized, and how to start making internal shifts in thoughts and feelings. For someone with an avoidant attachment style, one of the most important skills we can learn is to express our vulnerability and allow ourselves to receive affection without fear of being consumed or overwhelmed. We have to learn to recognize that fear of vulnerability, rejection, and disappointment. In any relationship, the other person will let us down from time to time. They will hurt our feelings and disappoint us. We're all only human and there's no such thing as a perfect relationship. However, it is important when we have an avoidant attachment style not to allow the fact that someone let us down to be a validation that everyone will always let us down and we should just bolt. Even though our experiences and our wiring tell us we would be better off alone and we cannot trust We must allow ourselves the space and the opportunity to learn to calm and self-regulate through proximity and dependence on others. Also, begin to see the relationship not as an obligation or a burden, but as a healthy opportunity for emotional and relational reciprocity. When we identify with the anxiously attached style, we often unconsciously or unintentionally send the wrong message to others, particularly in our primary relationships. We do that because we suppress our needs, and this suppression makes it all the more likely that our needs will not be met. This, of course, again, very often unconsciously validates what we know to be true, that our needs are not important and will not be met in relationship. We confuse our yearning and our anxiety for love. 
With disorganized attachments in particular, it can be helpful to have a therapist to work through some of the fragmented memories or missing pieces that can be part of abuse and trauma, which are usually a big part of the disorganized attachment style. And this really can be true for any and all of the insecure attachment styles. It might be helpful to work with a therapist who specializes in treating trauma. For instance, I treat trauma through a variety of modalities, including talk therapy, art therapy, and trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. There are many other treatments such as brain spotting or EMDR, which stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. It's important to recognize that for some of us, this kind of trauma treatment is necessary to learn to regulate ourselves and calm our bodies and brains before we can do some of the verbal processing. One of the benefits to having a therapist in helping to examine the attachments and relationships is that good therapy provides a secure attachment to allow growth and autonomy. We learn to stop reacting to triggers from our past experiences and instead respond thoughtfully, lovingly. We learn to resolve conflict with the ability to be vulnerable and trust, as well as be honest about our feelings and our needs. And we stop searching for that quote-unquote ideal someone, the knight who will rescue us or the princess who will make us the center of her entire world. So let's talk about six concrete steps to shift your thinking and feelings and help heal wounds and the ability to improve in relationship. The first is self-regulation and calming. You have to be able to calm yourself, to check yourself. I cannot overstress this point, and I know I've made it several times in prior podcasts, but before you can problem solve, feel and express strong emotions, empathize safely with another, disagree with a loved one, calm a child or a thousand other tasks, relational or otherwise, you must know how to regulate and calm yourself. If you find this difficult, I again encourage you to work with a professional therapist with trauma training. Secondly, and connected with number one, is coping with these emotions and using them as a source of data and awareness, especially in relationship. When you're thinking about something or having a conversation with a loved one and you suddenly feel your heart rate increase and your palms get sweaty, perhaps you have a memory of something or perhaps your mind goes blank, there doesn't appear to be a reason that you're upset. For instance, you and your partner are simply trying to decide what restaurant you want to go to for dinner. But recognizing that you said you wanted Italian and your partner didn't listen might be a trigger for you. Something that simple might take you right back to a time in childhood or life where you didn't feel listened to and you react, not based on where we're going for dinner, but based on unmet needs of the past or trauma. When that happens, tell yourself what is happening or tell your partner that you're having a reaction, making sure not to blame your partner, but observing, identifying, and, exp- and expressing what you're feeling in that moment. Practice recognizing when you're reacting rather than responding. And when that reaction does not appear to be appropriate for the situation at hand, screaming at your partner that you don't want Chinese and that you wanted Italian is probably an inappropriate reaction. Third, and along with practicing the first two skills, I would also encourage you to take a personal inventory. If you've examined your childhood wounds, you've been able to pinpoint those individuals or situations that you feel created or contributed to it. In your journal, I would urge you to write down the names of these people or these situations and address specifically what they did, how you felt, how it affected you, what they did that was wrong, and if you know why they did it. 
To illustrate, I spoke with a man who was exploring the spankings with a belt he received as a child from his father. He was angry at both parents, and we examined what had happened. As we were working through the inventory, he identified what they did. He lied to his parents, and his father hit him with a belt as his mother was making dinner. He felt scared, emotionally and physically in pain, sad, confused, and angry. He was able to identify how it affected him. He felt he wasn't given a chance to present his side of things, and he felt he didn't deserve the spanking with a belt. He felt shame because he was older and felt it was a punishment for younger children. And when we examined what they did wrong, he did not identify his dad hitting him as wrong. However, he did state he wished he'd been able to talk to his dad first and that that was usually something his mother initiated, but she didn't this time. But what he did identify is what his mother did wrong. She didn't do anything. And this angered him more than even his father hitting him with a belt. He felt she had, in a way, abandoned him, which he never remembered her doing before. He felt her not stepping in was as wrong as father hitting him with the belt. In remembering this, he was able to recognize that even though his mother and father both had done something he thought was wrong, he was able to move into the recognition that he would behave differently with his children. And he also remembered... His mother had said she had a toothache and didn't feel well, which might have been the reason that she was in the kitchen and didn't step in. So an inventory can be helpful in identifying how we feel others have hurt us and what we think they did wrong and why we're feeling like we do. Looking at what we think they did wrong is not in order to blame them. It is to help us to understand what happened to us and what we believe about it. Now, in certain situations with severe abuse and trauma, we can easily and readily blame those who have intentionally hurt us. And in exploring these relationships, the goal is not to reconcile, particularly with those who are damaging or detrimental to us. But there are many, many relationships, most, that do not fall under the umbrella of severe trauma and abuse. So fourthly, as you go through your inventory, I would also ask you to think about your coping survivals, your resilience. When you examine your wounds, your hurts, times you felt abandoned or alone or unheard, unseen, times you felt you were ugly or unloved or stupid or unworthy. Consider how you got through it. How did you emotionally and at times physically survive? I guarantee you that your story of survival, regardless of what you did to survive, is remarkable. It is a story of great strength and determination And I would bet that your story would be inspiring to others and is hopefully inspiring to you. One of the ways to identify how we've been hurt is to review how we hurt others. And so I would ask you on the fifth step of this exercise to do an inventory similar to the one you did for people that hurt you. But now look at how you have hurt others, what you did, how you felt, what you think you did wrong and why. These inventories, how we were hurt and how we hurt others may take some time. Take all the time you need and don't feel you have to do it all in one sitting. You can do notations or you can write at length, whatever feels most comfortable to you. And number six, make a little notation, maybe just a yes or no at each wounding incident on whether you feel at this point you would ever be able to forgive the person or people that hurt you. You don't have to be specific and you don't have to know exactly what it would look like, but search your heart after this inventory exercise and determine if there is a space for forgiveness for yourself or others. The point of this exercise is to examine your thoughts and feelings and actions. It is to explore how your experiences, the people in your life, and your understanding of these things affected your development, not only physically, but morally and emotionally, as well as your worldview and your understanding of human relationships. This is the starting place. 
The point is not to try to go back and change what happened, but to examine it and perhaps think about it in a different way with greater understanding and compassion for yourself and those around you at the time. As always, you can reach me through my website, katherinekentbelez.com. Have a meaningful and love-filled week.